Quick disclaimer, this is a Halloween episode, so things are a little bit darker and spookier than usual. Please see the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a Halloween episode. We'll discuss the pros and cons of putting bars on your teen's windows to keep them from having any freedom whatsoever, and why you probably shouldn't go on that date in the graveyard. The creature this week is a piglet that will steal your soul. This is Myths and Legends, episode 340, The Night That the Skeletons Came to Life. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today is the story of the Spectre Bridegroom, which is both a famous category of folktale, as well as a short story by Washington Irving, a famous writer of stories about murderous men with pumpkin heads and deadbeat dads who live in the Catskills. Those, of course, being The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which we haven't told in this podcast or fictional, and the story of Rip Van Winkle, which we have back in episode 159. Like Rip Van Winkle, today's story is based on a broad type of folktale, and we're going to tell both the folktale and Washington Irving's tale. You'll know when each is happening, it is super obvious in the story. We'll jump in with a family that has fallen on hard times but you wouldn't know it by looking at them, talking to them, going to their fantastic feasts, or staying in their castle's guesthouse. Embroidery, knowledge of the saints, the ability to read without great difficulty, she could sign her own name, legibly. The story tells us that, since she was an only child, all the exceptional qualities of her family were distilled into her and her alone. Lenora had it all, which was good because her father, Baron von Landshort, had, like, nothing. I mean, except for a castle and oh, servants and enough cash on hand for him to throw parties for his extended family, he was the type of impoverished where a story tells us that he is. And we have to believe it, because next to nothing else in the tale really supports or illustrates that assertion. Case in point, they lived in a castle, and through festivals, where all the baron's relations would show up to eat and to hear grim tales of horror. Tonight wasn't just any festival, though. Tonight, Lenora was meeting the man of her dreams. Or, at least, her father's dreams, or the dreams of his accountant. You see, Lenora had never met any man other than her father, her uncles and cousins and all that, and the occasional servant, who got the doors wrong and was promptly beaten and fired. All their hope was resting on her, and they could not afford to be disappointed. They had been training her for this since birth. With the death of Lenora's mother in childbirth, the Baron had called her aunts, who, having grown up in the courts of kings themselves, knew all those admirable traits I mentioned at the top of the show embroidery, knowledge of the saints, signing your name, and they pass them on to Lenora. More importantly, to the Baron at least, they might be great tutors, but they were simply amazing prison guards. The Baron might be on a hill in the middle of the forest. It might only be the case that the only visitors they had to the castle were people who knew its location and who could find it and also didn't give up on the way. Still, Lenora was barely allowed outside in her 18 years of life. And even then, 
was not permitted to leave the castle grounds. And tonight, all that excellent parenting was going to pay off. In money. And also maybe happiness for his daughter, but the Baron didn't have a horse in that particular race. Tonight, she was meeting Count von Altenberg. That was the plan, at least. In the forest, not a mile down the road, Count von Altenberg was slowing. What is it? Hermann von Starkenfaust asked. Hermann was the Count's friend from the war. He had been out on an errand and had chanced on his officer, traveling with a small retinue. The Count was happy to see a familiar face and explained why he was out. He was going to marry Lenora, daughter of Baron von Landshort up at Castle Landshort. Hermann told him he was familiar with the roads. He traveled that way often on his hunts. Too often. One time, he saw Lenora out on the cliffside, looking far off and forlorn. He only saw her for an instant, but that was all it took to enchant his heart. He thought that maybe, for an instant, she saw him there in the forest. That was all they had, too, because an older woman came shouting after Lenora. Herman sighed. The, the Count, Count von Altenberg, said that that was cool, how his friend was in love with his future wife. You're a lucky man, Herman sighed. Baron von Landshort was a wretched miser, a skinflint. He was in feuds with all of his neighbors over his borders, trying to wrench as much land as possible. In more than one instance, it came to violence, so no one dared to travel the road to Castle Landshort. Herman sighed. Still, it was dangerous. After the war, with so many young men having come home to poverty, they had turned to violence and robbery. Herman, the Count said. Herman turned and saw the Count drawing his sword, pointing at the road ahead. A singular traveler walked out, brandishing a spear. He wore a chainmail shirt and a grin. Herman charged and cut down the man blocking their way, and three more besides. He turned back around and saw why the Count didn't charge. The feathery end of an arrow peeked from his armor at the neck, and blood fell like a waterfall down the front and back of his chest plate. His men leapt from their horses and chased the archers. Half of them came back to Hermann ponying the Count's horse back down the road, toward the city of Wurzburg. The friar there took the Count in, and Hermann held the man's hand as he passed babbling about his bride. Baron von Landshort did another slow blink. He was quickly descending from party buzzed to sleepy buzzed. Ugh. Where in the world was this count? It was nearly 10.30. His relations were more than happy to keep circling the wine and food. And Lenora was just happy not to be shut up in her room with an aunt, studying something. Then, at the sounding of the bell, a few moments later, a servant called out. A rider, dressed in black, approaches. Baron von Landshort snorted awake. Yes, lower the drawbridge, let him in. Count von Altenberg murmured a low hello to his host and future father-in-law. The Baron looked him up and down, dressed so simply and without a retinue. 
it must be like a 2000s tech CEO thing where people wore hoodies and flip-flops to business meetings. I mean, nothing really said power like flouting convention without consequence. He beckoned the count inside and told him he could take off his cloak and scarf. The count removed his cloak, but refused to allow servants to touch his scarf. He was beginning to say something, but the baron interrupted him. And here she is, Baron von Landshort said, presenting his daughter. The count looked on Lenora with intensity. He took her hands and she pulled them away briefly. He was so cold. She did take them again, though, and gazed into the count's eyes. To one another, no one else in the room even existed. The baron, the dad, nodded. All right, got a intense goth teenage broody thing going on here. He didn't get it, but as long as it paid the bills, and, uh, sorry, made his daughter happy, that's what mattered to him. The feast was refreshed, and the drinks renewed, and the Baron, warmed and excited, seated the Count and Lenora next to each other. Throughout the feast, they whispered to each other in low murmurs. Lenora was smiling. The Baron called out that it was the witching hour. It wasn't. But they shouldn't let this occasion pass without a story. The Baron loved grim stories about stark old warriors, tales of ghosts and demons. Give me something spooky, the Baron grinned. After a fair bit of chatter around the tables, one of the cousins raised his hand. He had something spooky and actually kind of fit the theme of the night. It was called the Spectre Bridegroom. The Baron clapped. Excellent. So, the story began. We'll start in on the spooky story, but that will be right after this. Lenore... The character in the story, told at the party, and not Lenora, the Baron's daughter, looked out on the field, telling herself that today was the day, but knowing in her heart it wouldn't be. William, her William, was late coming home. That, that was all it was. The drum beats of the others, their march breaking to a run, as they ran to their beloveds, had ceased long ago. Young and old, it was miraculous. They all returned. All but William. At first, his friends told her that William was on his way. They had been separated in the blood and smoke and terror of battle, but he was coming home. He had talked of nothing but Lenore and how they had promised themselves to one another when they were young, stealing away when their families didn't know, how she was his best friend and his love, how he had to come home to her, it was, if they were being honest, a little annoying, like they get it. He loved his fiance. they all did. Can we please talk about something else? Anyway, yes, he'll be home. Don't worry about it. But as summer turned to autumn and the last of the leaves began to fall away, they stopped being so reassuring as the young women became pregnant and life resumed in the village after the war. Lenora found herself more and more out in the cold fields, alone. Alone, she would rage, tearing at her raven hair. She thought of the other young women who in church praised God that their loves had come home, 
or the pastor who told her that everything that God did was right. It was easy to praise God in the arms of your spouse, or if you never even had to go to war, like the pastor. Soon, all accepted what happened to William. He was not coming home. The Lord is wise. The Lord is good. What he hath done is right, Lenore's mother said to her daughter. Lenore slammed her door and broke down. She prayed and prayed, but to what avail? People told her to go take the sacrament, but what sacrament can help the dead see the light of day? Lenore began to think dark thoughts. That maybe death was better. Being with William was better than this existence for, according to the poem, with him tis heaven anywhere. Without my William, hell. She stopped sleeping. She barely ate. She neither laughed nor talked. She sat in her room in the darkness. Her family worried about her, but being unable to handle the crushing reality of a fiancé taken too soon, mixed with the powerful emotions of adolescence, their advice of pray more was less than helpful. This went on for weeks until, at 3 a.m. one morning, Lenore heard a horse outside. She rose and stumbled to the window, and she nearly fell backwards. Hi, Lenore. It was him, William. He stood there smiling like nothing had ever happened. I'm sorry I've been late. I made it to you as soon as I could. He was in armor, riding his horse. She strained at the window, telling him to come inside. She couldn't believe he was here. He told her no. He had something better. At the end of this ride, he had a pastor willing to marry them. Their marriage bed awaited. She looked inside, to the darkness of the house. It, but, but her family. Then her visage soured. No, no, you know what? Her mother and aunts didn't help her. They could only tell her to pray. She would make them seek her out, find her, see that they had been wrong, and she had been right to have faith not in God, but in William, that he would return to her. She gathered her coat and ran to him. And it was him. He was smiling, waiting for her. They embraced. They kissed. He took her into his arms and carried her to the horse. She said that it was so late, so dark. Was he sure it was safe? William told her that after everything he had been through, nothing could keep them apart. The night would end when they were together in their marriage bed. He keeps talking about the marriage bed. He mounted the horse with a leap, and Lenore, not looking back to her darkened house, to the dismal days that had passed, but she looked before her, over William's shoulder, to the future that was theirs. They rode on and she rested her head on the shoulder, hands on his chest. The whole ride was, okay, a bit much, with both of the teens very excited for the marriage bed, but describing it in the most chaste, Elizabethan English way possible. Not sure if it was a product of the time, though probably not because Shakespeare gets up to some cleverly descriptive wordplay. It could be a product of more staid writers adapting things in the 1800s. Whatever it was, these kids were excited to be married in every way possible. So excited that William seemed to ride to the point of recklessness. Lenore was surprised and a little scared. She had heard of the war changing some of the other men who returned, and 
William was taking terrible risks. Every time Lenore told him to slow down, he would cry out that the dead can ride apace. He had spent enough time among the dead, though. He was excited for their wedding bed, again with a wedding bed, and their endless union to be knit. Wink. Lenore said, endless is a little. Maybe they could talk about how this was gonna, but then the horse slowed. They were there, at the church. The moonlight gave everything an otherworldly glow. Lenore was expecting warmth. William's family. She remembered the minister, but what minister awaited them in a church like this? The church's windows felt like they were watching her, despite being like two empty eye sockets having been gouged out in the war. It's yawning, black mouth, a scream. Like the church was being pulled down into the grave by the vines that wrapped and grew up to its roof. In the cemetery that approached, the ground was overgrown and wild. A lot of blood was spilled here, William said, as he dismounted his horse. In the moonlight, his eyes and teeth seemed to dance disembodied. He grabbed her hand. Come, he's waiting. William helped her down. His armor clanged as he jogged inside. Lenore looked up. The tree's late autumn branches curled down like claws. She rushed after William. When she passed under the gnarled teeth of the half-deteriorated archway, her feet found stone, and her eyes found William. Only William. He stood alone at the altar. No family. No minister. Only him. Lenore, come here, William called, his smile growing wider. I have been waiting for you. He stepped down from the altar. His armor, what he had worn on his horse, began to rust and corrode before turning black and rotting away. His shirt withered and rotted too. Then his flesh. She was looking at a wraith, a skeleton with greasy bits of flesh hanging from its outstretched arm. Its eyes blazed with fire. It was then that she noticed the altar wasn't an altar. She recognized the armor on the corpse in the casket left open, the church having been attacked during the funeral. It was William, the true William. She turned to run, realizing her horrible mistake, but the door was gone. Anything a few steps away faded off into the void. She was in a vast, empty nothing. Lenore screamed. courtyard was empty. The church stood as it did before, a husk of its former self. But if you listened closely, on that night and the few that followed, you could hear the screaming and then the low sobs of a young woman. Whatever had led her there had granted her final prayer. She and William were reunited. The people who came to that church months later to rebuild after the war, who managed to lift the heavy slab laid atop the casket on the altar, were puzzled as to why the people of the town would bury two in one coffin. These two must have truly been in love. They dragged Lenore and William away and buried them in the churchyard.
spooky, Baron von Landshort said back at the feast. He really liked the part where the young woman had desires and agency and those led to a horrible death. He turned, wait, Lenore? Lenora? What? Might be something to learn from here. I'm just kidding, you're getting married. Not my problem anymore. He turned to Lenora and saw that she was on the verge of tears. The Baron shook his head. No, 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 he was, he was sorry. It was just a story. Just then, Count von Altenburg rose. It was nearly midnight. He must be going. The Baron didn't understand. What? Why? No, he had a guest house made up for the Count. He couldn't leave on the road at this time. It was dangerous. Please. He had beds aplenty. Stay. Count von Altenburg's eyes flashed. No. He must lay his head in an altogether different bed on this night. And it was nearly midnight. He had an appointment to keep. The Baron called after him, but Count von Altenburg ordered his black steed prepared. He mounted without another word and rode off in a full gallop into the night. When he had gone, Lenora broke into tears and ran from the gate. The Baron shrugged that had gone well... We'll see that it went very well and also terribly, but that will, once again, be right after this. The Baron's head drooped. Go. Go and get her. The hall was bustling for breakfast. All the Baron's relations had stayed the night in the castle. The Baron had sent an invitation to town for Count von Altenburg to come back and dine with them again, and word had returned. Lenora entered the hall to find her father looking at the floor and the messenger dressed in black. The Baron said he had terrible news. Count von Altenburg, he died. He never made it to Würzburg. He was attacked by bandits on the road. I told him it was too dangerous to go out in the middle of the night. Ah, if only he had waited two days to die after they got married. The Baron swore and then turned to the messenger. Oh, sorry, his condolences, of course. The messenger was more confused than offended. What did the Baron mean by warned him? The messenger was trying to say that Count von Altenburg never made it to Würzburg at all. He was killed by an arrow to the neck around twilight in the forest on his way to visit the Baron. He was buried last night, at midnight. Twilight, that's, that's impossible, the Baron said. He rode here. He sat with us for hours. He, wait, midnight? The Baron thought back to the man in black with cold hands, who never took his scarf from his neck, who had a different place to lay his head at midnight. He, he told me, Lenora said. Both men turned. He told me he had died, that that was why he had to leave, that he was going to be buried, but he wanted to meet me, and now that he had, it made dying so much more difficult. She could barely contain her sobs and started breathing faster and faster. She ran off, again, to her quarters. Word spread that a ghost, a specter, had been in their midst the day before. And while the Baron loved ghost stories, 
he had no desire to be in one. Neither did most of his extended family, and while, on most days, he would be happy to see them all leave as quickly as possible, this time he actually wanted them to stick around, but they fled. With only him, his sisters, and a handful of servants, the shadows of Castle Landshort seemed to grow darker, and the nights colder, and the trees more bare and threatening. That it was simply the changing of the seasons and happened every year didn't really seem to register with the Baron. It was one night, like, right? Am I wrong here? The Baron said to his sisters, the three of them sitting down for a dinner set for four. I get they hit it off, but what is going on? We were all that age once, one of the sisters said. She understood being in love. She always did her duty, though. She was always proper. She didn't sit in her room and ignore summons for meals and school. She didn't refuse to see suitors when they arrived. This would pass, though. The second sister was quiet. She said she wasn't so sure. The pair turned to her. She said she had been up late the previous night. Reading. When she passed Lenora's room, her candle dripping, she didn't hear weeping, which was a good change. She did feel the chill air of an open window and knew that her niece must be asleep. Not wanting the girl to catch cold, the aunt went to close the window, but Lenora wasn't asleep, and she wasn't alone. Lenora stood there, framed by the window, the pale moon in the sky, illuminating the grass outside. Off by the cliff, by the trees... A figure stood, a man in black, with a scarf around his neck. Lenora heard her aunt and turned around, smiling. There was something disconnected about her gaze. It was soft, yet intense. She said that her beloved, the Count, had returned to her. Just like in the stories, they, they could be together. The aunt looked back out to the figure in black. He was gone. Lenora shook her head. She was herself again. She said, please. She begged her aunt not to tell anyone about this, especially not her father. The Count had been visiting, standing far off. It was the one melancholy joy that she still had. No, no, this could not be. The Baron shook his head. With Lenora miserable, he was miserable. He hated seeing her like this, and he had no idea how to stop it, but to know that some predatory specter was visiting her in the night? You cannot tell her I told you, please, the aunt said. She only told the Baron because she feared what the girl might do. Put a watch on her room, have someone patrol the garden. Whatever he needed to do, just please, don't tell her. The Baron agreed. It could stay a secret, which was how Lenora, that night, disappeared. How did she slip past the guards? The Baron screamed as he saw the messenger off. The ants looked at each other, neither daring to say that the man was a specter? A ghost? Was it really so hard to believe he could get her past the Baron's household guards? It was the middle of the night, but if the stories the Baron loved were to be believed, there was only one place the couple was going, to the church in Wurzburg, to the grave 
of Count von Altenburg. The Baron rode with his sisters, and however many guards he could rustle from bed at that hour, they picked their way slowly through the forest at night, the guards riding ahead to protect them from Count von Altenburg's fate. The gatekeeper was awake and ready to open up for the Baron. The messenger had done his job. The church was cold and quiet, and at the far end of the graveyard, they found the minister standing with the messenger, protesting. The dirt on the grave wasn't fresh, but seeing as the burial had been so recent, it was still a different color from the surrounding ground. The minister stood before the messenger who, armed with a shovel, screamed that this was a matter of life and death. She was in there. I am sorry, but you are not exhuming this body. The young man's family is coming to pay their respects tomorrow. The minister clenched his fists. The baron pointed at the minister, and his household guard rushed the man, restraining him and keeping him from interfering. I'm sorry, minister, but my daughter's in there, and I'm going to save her. The baron told his men to keep digging. Uh, no, she's not, the minister ventured. Yes, she is. It's a specter bridegroom thing. You know, like the story. It sounds ridiculous, but there are sinister things that lurk in this world that defy explanation. The baron said over the shovel's cutting and scooping the fresh dirt on the grave. No, but she's not in there. I just saw her. She's sitting in the rectory with the boy, the minister said. As the shovels hit the casket, the baron turned. What? There she was. Smiling, he hadn't seen her smile in weeks since Count von Altenberg's dinner and... Hey, you're not Count von Altenberg. I know you. You're, you're the von Starkenfaust kid, the Baron pointed to Hermann, sitting next to his daughter in the parish house, waiting to be married as he previously arranged with the minister. Still, the Baron was so happy his daughter was alive and also not in love with a ghost. Lenora smiled. She was hoping her father would see it that way, because, after a ghost, Herman didn't seem so bad, did he? Herman said he did come to relay the message that Count von Altenberg had been killed and wouldn't be coming to dinner. But he saw Lenora, and he was speechless. By the time he could correct the error, he was already sitting next to her and didn't want the night to end. He came clean to her instantly, as soon as they hit it off and they came up with this plan together during the story, while the cousin was hamming it up with all the scary descriptions of the church. Like, we get it. It's spooky. This wasn't... They were sorry about deceiving him. They were. The plan was to run away together, but neither could really leave their family. Even though Lenora felt oppressed by her aunts and father, she knew it was out of love even though Herman had long dreaded taking on the responsibilities of managing his family's estate and vast fortune, he knew it would crush his parents if he, their sole heir, were to elope and leave. The Baron took his daughter's hands. She really felt oppressed by her upbringing? Lenora smiled. She knew it was only because they wanted the best for her, but yeah, it was a lot. The Baron said he was sorry for keeping her cloistered. He was glad she was safe and alive and also not in love with a dead man. If this was her choice, and Herman wanted to, he would support their marriage. And then he... Wait. He paused. Did Herman say vast fortune? Herman said yeah. 
He and his father and his grandfather were either lucky enough or unlucky enough to be the sole survivors of their respective siblings. So their family wealth had been pretty much preserved for a couple hundred years now. He stopped talking. The Baron opened his arms wide. Come here, son. Everyone rejoiced. Well, save the ants. The story tells us that they were annoyed that their regimen for the girl was undermined so egregiously. When they trained up her daughter someday, they would put bars on her windows. And no joke, that's in the story. After Lenora and Herman were married, they had a son and daughter, and the Baron passed away, Lenora graciously gifted her aunts a castle far, 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 far away from her and her daughter. And she didn't put bars on any of the windows. So, the story in the middle is a folktale, but the one surrounding it is The Spectre Bridegroom by the American writer Washington Irving. It comes from the same collection as The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. I like how he plays with the idea of the story, shows the power of stories, and this whole thing is sort of a clever subversion, even if it is a bit of an obvious one. Next week, we're back in Greek myth with the stories of Artemis. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a banana injector, a device you can use to inject Nutella, peanut butter, yogurt, honey, really anything edible or inedible, if you don't like the person you're cooking for, into a banana, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that, sadly, won't help you prank your family by filling their fruit with sawdust or whatever. Check out mythpodcast.com membership for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Katakira Uwa from Japanese folklore. So piglets are adorable. Full-grown pigs, less so. One-eared, one-eyed piglets that steal your soul from, quote, your genitals. That's a distant third. Yeah, that's the Katakira Uwa in a nutshell. A pig that runs in between your legs and steals your soul. Some places say life force resulting in death, but at that point we're really just splitting hairs. The most famous story regarding this piglet is when a young man got his first paycheck. He immediately went to the bar to celebrate. Staggering home, he saw a little one-eyed piglet in his path and it charged him. His thoughts were either, wait, is that a pig? Or why is that pig charging me? He deftly widened his stance to allow the pig to pass underneath, but that proved to be his undoing. After the pig passed, he fell on the ground, dead. His soul was taken by the pig. You don't need to be staggering home drunk to be a victim of the Katakira Uwa. Comes out day and night in any season, in the middle of the most bustling city, or the most serene, solitudinous rural road. So if you see a piglet in your path, oddly enough, don't run. Sit down, cross your legs, and wait for it to pass. The stories say that you should check and see if it casts a shadow, but really, if you're facing off against an overly aggressive piglet, why risk it? That's it for this time. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music